Genesis 19, 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a mess of a family. What a mess of a father and husband. What a mess of a family line and legacy. Their deeds hit us like a punch in the gut. We know by your word that your grace towards your people is never to be used as an excuse to sin. Your whole purpose in saving us in Christ is to give us your spirit who then, by his working through your word, transforms us into the very image of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We know we fall short. And if you could save a man like this and call him righteous lot, then we beg that you would cause us to grow into that righteousness in our lives more and more with each passing day. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Today is Reformation Sunday. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses, points of debate that he wanted to debate with the church. Particularly, he was upset about the indulgences that the church was selling, giving people a free ticket to heaven if they would just give money to go towards the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he saw this as an abuse. He saw this as an oppression of poor people. And indeed, it was that. It really wasn't until a little bit later that he really was truly saved when he read about the just shall live by faith. And we sang that, that hymn from uh, Count von Zinzendorf uh, who wrote of Jesus' blood and righteousness and being our beautiful dress. And boy, does a family ever need that more than this one. No family needs that more than this one, maybe. Maybe we do. 
But I thought about, as I read this passage, these are God's friends. God calls them, we'll see. Righteous lot, he makes no bones about that. As he does to the Apostle Peter. With friends like these, like the old saying says, who needs enemies? Why does the Lord persevere with Lot? With us? Lot is so impulsive. He's so indecisive. But he was growing. And there is evidence of that, not particularly in this passage, a little bit in this passage. We'll point out when we get there. But in all through this whole story with Lot, from Genesis 12 through this present moment, he needs a lot of help. Maybe we do too. This quote I found on the internet, attributed to Vincent van Gogh, a great Dutch artist. Great things are not done by impulse, but by a series of small things brought together. Attention to small details. And Lot missed him big time. Only the Lord can really do this. Because not even our sin can stop him. He'll use that sin to accomplish this great covenant reclamation that he has. This project, this desire to bring a people to himself. To have them for his own. It's unimpeded by our sin. So why does the Lord put up with Lot? Because there's no stopping his reclamation determination. Not even those shameless know-it-alls with their decadent doings leading to their corrupt consequences. The Lord's great covenant reclamation is unimpeded by sin. So why does the Lord put up with Lot? Because you can't stop his determination to reclaim, not even those shameless know-it-alls. And what we see here, particularly with Lot's daughters, is kind of a know-it-all in a negative direction. And you want to say to them and to any of us, don't you know that the, how the Lord expands your options, not narrows them? They have a very narrow focus in this, in this section. And the reason, well, not the reason, but the factors that go into that, coming from Lot, is first his example to his daughters and then the impact on his daughters in this section. In verse 30, we see Lot heading out of Zoar up to the hills. And what we see throughout Lot's story is there are many key points that he just freaks out. He freaks out a lot. He's anxious. Now, we might need to consider the trauma of Genesis 14, particularly verses 11 and 12, that tell us when those uh, kings got together against the other kings and the main big, big dog king was Ketalamer, and Ketalamer attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and took all their possessions, and it specifies they took Lot and all his possessions too. And then Abraham had to go in and rescue him. And then he you find that conflict seems to follow him wherever he goes. First with Abraham in Genesis 13, 7, when there was a dispute between the keeping of the flocks between Abraham's men and Lot's men. 
And then finally with the Sodomites, he's living in this land that he probably shouldn't have been there all by himself. He's impulsive and he's indecisive. Look at where he's going. To the hills. If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, we've emphasized what did the angels of the Lord tell, where did they tell him to go in the first place? You look up there in verses 15 through 20. Right? That's the whole story, particularly at the end of verse 19. Lot begs, please don't send me to the hills. They say, go to the hills. He says, don't send me there because I'm going to die. And he's moved from a tent that he first settled in with, uh, with Lot in Genesis 13. I mean, sorry, with the, when, he, when Lot went to Sodom, he was in a tent to a house in Genesis 19, verse 2, and now he's in a cave. That's not three steps forward, two steps back, folks. That's three steps forward and about 15 steps back. Why didn't he just listen to the Lord in the first place? Why don't we? Lot, Lot's bad example is a factor with his daughters. We have to look at the impact on his daughters. Look at verses 31 and 32. Look at the lies they buy into in the first part. Of, look at verse 31. In the first part, what is it that gives weight to lies? That it has some truth mixed in. They, they say, our father's an old man. And the implication there is, look, mom died. She looked back at Sodom. She turned into a pillar of salt. She's not here. She's not, he's not going to bear any more children. We're sitting here in a cave Right? What are we going to do? And, and a, a woman's primary function, primary function, not only function, is to bear children. And it was such a shame. Remember, Sarah, Sarah had that shame that she couldn't bear children. Now, that's misplaced because it's due to a lack of understanding of how the general effects of the fall do affect us. And so they're driven by this internal Maternal instinct, it's not even an instinct, it's a maternal seed that God plants there in women. But what is it that gives weight to these lies? The truth. There's some truth mixed in. Mark Twain has been quoted as saying, the devil will use 99% of the truth to float one lie. And then look at the second part of verse 31. There is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. These are extraordinary sentiments in light of God's rescue of them. What has God done? He's come and saying, look, I am going to destroy this land. I'm coming to get you out. I've rescued you in so many ways. I mean, Lot, your father, offered y'all up to the men that were demanding to rape the men that were inside. And the angels rescued Lot from that. When they were about to get violent, he, they literally took them out of the land. They actually gave the permission to go to Zoar because Lot said, I need to go there. And, and all of this saving work of God, and they say something like this. They're, you know, they're just being realistic, right? We don't have to trust God when, we're, when, when we know it works. If it works, do it. We don't need to trust God, right? We just need to be efficient, get the job done. Sometimes that's okay. 
Sometimes that's wise. The trouble is, is are you discerning enough? Are you virtuous enough? Are you transformed enough to discern the difference here? And so they fall into a shameless pragmatism due to their fatalism. Fatalism is, look, and, it's, and this is actually a category in therapy called catastrophic thinking. That why would they think that there is no man out there when the Lord has done all this for them? See, their basic sentiment is right about having a line to preserve. God says he puts eternity in our hearts. We desire, even though we see people dying, we want that line, we want that legacy. But it gets twisted so easily. And we see in this family that reflective thought is really not the strength of this family, is it? We see Lot's greed that led to this situation in Genesis 13, 13. When he went and settled, he saw the lush green valley. He said, I'm going to take that. And that's what he was thinking of, his greed, impulsive. Then he offered up his daughters, as we mentioned. Lot could sometimes show godliness. The angel said, hey, you got any other relatives here? He runs and he tells his sons-in-law that we're due to marry his daughters. And he uses this word, up, for the Lord is about to destroy. But they think he's joking and they don't move. But then, in the very next verse, the angels wake him up with the very same words, up. Hey, we told you we're going to destroy this. And what does he do in verse 16 of chapter 19? He lingers because he's moved from a tent to a house he's done great business there well how can i separate myself from this and then he negotiates this whole deal about going to zoar and there is a bit of wisdom in this because if god actually buys his proposal and says okay do it he will be safe in zoar just that safety for him in the Lord, doesn't have any staying power. As we see right at the beginning of this verse, verse 30, he goes away from Zohar because he was afraid. The angels had told him to go up in the hills. And so he ends up in the hills. So he's foolish at the same time. All of this moving him out of fear, not fear of the Lord, but fear that betrays a lack of faith. Because Lot wants guarantees in a fallen world. And you can't have them. You guys got to trust. And because of this fear, what does fear do? It narrows your assumptions. It narrows the options available to you. You cannot have an emergency room doctor or surgeon afraid. You cannot have a pilot like Captain Sully Sullenberger when he landed that plane when all the engines cut out. You can't have him afraid. Certainly a healthy fear that drives him to training, to depend on the training, like he said, like an emergency room doctor or surgeon does. Anxiety narrows assumptions. And don't you see, Lot, don't you see God's people here today how the Lord expands your options. You see, this narrowing effect when you're just in a cave, when you're in, when you're separated, like we, we were potted off during the 15 days to flatten the curve. We're left with ourselves and our own thoughts. 
not interacting with the world, watching Netflix all day or whatever it is we did. It leads to depravity and decadence. Do we not see that in our culture? Decadence is defined as this, moral or cultural decline characterized by excessive indulgence in pleasure or luxury. Does that not describe the Western world, America in particular? And so, those shameless know-it-alls that have those narrowing assumptions from their anxiety, they have a basic insecurity that they want to control what they can't control. Maybe they wouldn't have found a man, but why would they assume that they wouldn't? And then do this. How do you counteract that effect of anxiety? You need to reflect. You need to reflect on God's goodness to you. And you need to relax. You need to rest. Christ says, come unto me all you are heavy burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord's great covenant reclamation is unimpeded by sin. Why does the Lord put up with Lot? Because he has this determination that you can't stop. Not even those shameless know-it-alls with their decadent doings. And isn't this right? And what these, these uh, daughters and, and Lot himself driven by anxiety. Don't you see how the Lord settles your soul? And what we see here is Lot's lack of leadership and his lack of vision. First, his lack of leadership. Verse 33, at the very beginning of it. Verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night. Lot has not been leading his family well in the things of the Lord. Now, he didn't have the written testimony, but he did separate himself from God's covenant head. He lost his wife due to this, probably, because of his bad example of lingering. She had even more reason to linger. She had family there. She had grown up in Sodom. And she did not have the wherewithal, the tools that her husband could have given her and she, she died. Now, I'm not saying Lot's responsible for that, nor is he responsible for what his daughters do here. But he is responsible for himself, that he allowed himself to get that blindingly drunk that he couldn't even, you know. And that is, by the way, that's still a sign of his godliness. Because, not the drunkenness, but the fact that the girls had to do that in order to do this, because... If he was fully aware, and that doesn't get, still doesn't give him an excuse, it's just factors understanding the situation. If he was fully aware, this would have been a no-go from the beginning. But he has no self-control. And you know what a lack of leadership does? A lack of willingness to go out there and take the arrows at the front. You know what it does? It creates a void, which the void creates anxiety, and anxiety narrows the mind. It narrows the mind because we all want to fill in the blank of what's coming to us. That's the eternity in our hearts. From Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has put eternity in our hearts, but such that man does not know the beginning from the end. 
That's why it's so frustrating. We can't control it. We can't guarantee it. We can do some wise things that lead to certain things, but even that's not guaranteed because God is in control. And you know what happens in this anxiety? Their identity becomes fluid. This whole thing about gender fluidity and all this fluidity, it's all about anxiety, folks. And it's anxiety because we don't want to look at God. We want to control. And that's why these people always talk about how they feel so much better when they change. Change. Until the suicide rate goes up high. It's always been high in the transgender community, by the way. Talking about fluidity. But it is true. How do you know who you are in the midst of this kind of world? And when you're fluid, you're, you'll conform to anything around you. The pressure cooker of the world puts you into its mold. Paul puts it like this in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Conformed means con, means with, form, being shaped. So do not go along with the shaping of the world. What's coming from out there? Be grounded in his word. And how do you do that? But be transformed, which means trans means change, change the form, be, which is passive. So that means it's something that's done to you in a process. What's that process? By the renewal of your mind, doesn't mean you're passive in it. You've got to renew your mind. How do you do that? You go to God's word, get his truth, continue to bathe in that word. And you know what will happen? What comes next? That by testing... See, the Lord doesn't just expect you, okay, just get the word and go. He wants you to test it. Maybe you didn't understand it fully the first time, or maybe you did, and you just got to trust the Lord. But what you'll find through that process of testing, what he says next, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And all that means is lining up with the way God made things. Of course, we're not going to be totally perfect. What he means is that's the aim, that's the trajectory. To line yourself up with the way God made things. So Lot, Lot's lack of leadership leads to this lack of vision. He, uh, in verses, uh, the end of verse 33 down to verse 35, or this proposal about what they're going to do with their father. And what are these girls doing? They just absorbed Sodom's worldviews, what they did. Their father wasn't leading well. Their mother was a Sodomite. And there's no questions raised, verse 30, 34 to 35. The younger daughter didn't go, hey, well, wait a minute. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, it is true at this time there were uh, cousins that would marry, even brothers and sisters. There's never a recorded piece where there's something internal that people just knew. You don't do this. You don't do this. And a lack of reflection on Lot's part it led to him not giving his family any vision of God's worldview, of God's authority and what it meant for their lives. They had none, obviously. So don't you see how the Lord settles your soul to expand your options? Man, don't leave a leadership void in your home. Take it upon yourself to gently lead your wives, your children, and even your grandchildren to, to the extent that you can. 
What do you got to do that to, for that? Don't let the void happen. You got to reflect. You got to reflect on God's word and you got to say something. And women, when you're in positions of leadership, this is all leadership. You got to reflect on your people. You got to reflect on the truth of God's word. And you got to ask the Lord for wisdom, which he promises to give in abundance in James 1.5. The Lord's great covenant reclamation is unimpeded by our sin. Why does the Lord put up with Lot? Because there's no stopping his reclamation determination, not even those shameless know-it-alls with their decadent doings leading to their corrupt consequences. Because all of this, the Lord really desires for his people. He desires their good name. And Lot's legacy is soiled. As I prepare for this, no matter how many times I read, even this morning, verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Every time I feel it right there. Their son's father is their grandfather too. But Peter breaks his fall. Because Peter, as we've seen all the way through, Lot's godliness does come through. But it comes from a spring of righteousness that he got that has nothing to do with him. Look at 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, he was greatly distressed by that. He showed it in how he tried to protect the angel, even though he was kind of foolish at the same time, offering up his daughters. Verse 8. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Three times Peter says he is righteous. That would be a harder thing to find, honestly, and it would have been a lot harder for me to get to this understanding of Lot if it wasn't for the Apostle Peter. He's the controlling interpreter of this whole thing. Now what does Peter mean? How is Lot righteous? He's righteous in two ways, in Christ. And that's what we believe, that the work of Christ applies to the saints of the Old Testament. We call them saints. It's not like a special class of people. All of us who are in Christ, no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, we're all saints, which means we are considered holy ones not because of us, not because of our works. Our works are a mixed bag. But because of what Christ did and gave to us in his righteousness that he lived. We are declared righteous. That's the way Peter is primarily using it. But he's also saying that that declaration gave God's spirit to Lot in which all of this happened in Lot. The, the uh, distress over the sensual conduct of the wicked, uh, tormenting his righteous soul. There, there are spots of godliness in his life. The Lord's great reclamation, his great covenant reclamation is unimpeded by sin. He puts up with Lot because there's no stopping his reclamation determination. Even though shameless know-it-alls with their decadent doings leading to their corrupt consequences and in conclusion, looking at verses 37 and 38 as a basis, Lot's descendants 
are a mixed bag. Why didn't he just go back and live with Abraham for a while? At least for a while. Was it shame? Was it pride? He needed that wisdom and that fellowship, and so do we. That's why we should always strive to meet together as the apostle branded sermon in Hebrews says, let us not forsake the meeting of ourselves together. We cannot do that through a Zoom video, folks. We cannot bear one another's burdens that way. We must meet together. We are not wiser than God. We need to trust him. We can take precautions when we need to, but we need to trust him and not be afraid. Do not be controlled by fear. Doesn't mean don't have any fear. Doesn't mean don't struggle with your fears and your anxieties. But obviously, we see this picture here of what can happen. Doesn't mean this will happen to you. I don't expect that it does. See, these people that were born of these daughters from Lot, they were cursed. They were cursed, and they tried to curse God's people themselves. Look at Deuteronomy, the extent of their curse. Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. That's a way of the Lord saying they're never getting in. Never. They're never going to be saved. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. And why? What did they do? We see in Numbers 25. Remember, we talked about this when we were talking about the Seth line. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, right? And they desired them and took them. Well, this is what Balaam did. While uh, 25, 1, 31, 16, while, living, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Behold, on these, on the Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. And the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. But the Lord was looking out for his people. Look at the end of that section of Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. But... The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord turned, your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Is there a blessing for cursed people? Well, not all of them. And certainly this was for God's people Israel. The Moabites were still cursed as far as this verse was concerned. But if the Lord chooses by his grace, he can save, and he does. In fact, so much so that he names a Moabite in the genealogy of Christ's descendants. Look at Matthew 1, 5, and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. Jesus had to rise from David's lineage. And what Jesus is saying, and see, here's the thing. We're all cursed. That's why Galatians 3, 13, Christ became a curse for us. Because it says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus identifies with these cursed people. He is not ashamed to have Ruth identified with him. She was a Moabite. If you have 20 minutes today, 
Read the book of Ruth, four chapters, take you 20 minutes. Hebrews 2.11. For he, meaning Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, meaning all those who are set apart by God, all have one source. That's God, right? That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. That's why Peter calls him righteous Lot. Jesus is not ashamed of Lot. Jesus is not ashamed of Ruth. Jesus is not ashamed of you and me. God says, with friends like these, I'll take them and I'll take care of them and we'll love them and we'll transform them from fr to friends of mine when they used to be my enemies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you call us your friends. For we would have no hope and nothing but dread and fear of facing you in judgment if you hadn't sent your son, our Lord Jesus, who saved us from our sins by becoming a curse for us by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now you have received us into your heart because of Christ's work on our behalf. And you are not ashamed to call us your sons and daughters, adopted by you in love, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.